Jeffrey Olson, international number one best-selling author. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for being here. Sue, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. First, I would like to start off the interview with your life before the near-death experience that had a profound impact on you. Yeah, well, I, um, I was a regular guy, I suppose. I, I grew up on a little family farm in the mountains of Utah, uh, rough and tumble. Uh, my mother and father divorced, and I spent my early years with my mother, but in my adolescent years, I was with my brothers and my single father on the farm. Um, it was kind of like Bonanza, if you will, or, or, or Yellowstone. And uh, I went away um, to college, went to the university, and I, I received a, uh, a football scholarship, American football. So I suppose I was a rough and a tumble, aggressive guy. Um, I fell madly in love in college. And that was uh, a beautiful thing because it took me by surprise. I mean, people have talked about love at first sight. This was deeper than that. I mean, this young woman came into the room and, and I, it's like a lightning bolt struck me. And, and I knew there was a knowing, there she is, that's the one. And I suppose the most incredible thing is that I introduced myself. I was very shy growing up, uh, very... Um, I would be the guy that would stand in the corner and not say much and observe. But uh, we started a friendship, turned into a relationship, turned into a courtship, and we were eventually married and uh, madly in love. I had a marketing background, so I was working um, at an ad agency. I had recently broken off and started my own ad, ad agency with partners. Uh, Tamara, my wife, was a school teacher, and we had two beautiful boys. Um, but I suppose if I was to define myself, I was probably still the red personality. Let's take charge. Let's go fight, win. Uh, very competitive. Let's beat the other guy and, and, and come out on top. And that was, uh, that was life before the accident. What was your face before the accident? I believed I had a faith before the accident and, and, and still do. But before the accident, I would probably classify myself as religious. I mean, I, uh, I would be in church, in the church pew, following the rules, doing what I had been taught was right, which was not a bad thing. I have a great respect for organized religion. Uh, the near-death experience shifted that in many ways. But before the accident, I was a believer uh, the experience kind of shifted everything and turned it inside out, upside down, and yet expanded it in a, uh, in a beautiful way. What happened on the day of your near-death experience? And it's, it's interesting to go back to the accident. Um, and it's a very tender time for me. Uh, it was in March that the accident happened. So it will be 26 years ago this month. And we had uh, been on a family vacation um, having grown up a conservative Christian, we were celebrating the Easter holiday. And we had taken a family road trip to southern Utah, the beautiful Red Rocks and everything that's in the southern part of the state where I live. And we were also visiting Tamara, my wife's uh, family. Her parents and grandparents were also there. 
And it was, a, it was a beautiful weekend. We had a fantastic visit with the family. We did all kinds of family traditions. You know, we would always uh, uh, take eggs and color the Easter eggs and hide them in the garden. And the kids would go find them on Sunday morning. And we had a beautiful meal. And it was Monday. It was the Monday after the Easter holiday that we were headed back on road home. And it was about a five-hour drive for us. And it's interesting that day. I'll never forget certain things about that morning. Uh, we had hugged everyone. We had said goodbye. I had put the kids in the car and buckled everyone in safely. And we were just pulling away from the curve. And uh, there was my wife's mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, waving on the porch the way they do. And as I began to pull away, Tamara stopped me. She said, stop, wait. And I, I thought she had forgotten something in the house. I put the car in park and, and she said, I just want to go say goodbye to mom and dad one more time. Now, in that moment, I thought, gosh, women, we've hugged. <laughs> you know, we're ready to go. Let's get on the road. But I noticed. I noticed as she went to the porch, she ran up and she not only hugged them both but she kissed them. And I noticed that. I watched as she hugged them and kissed them. And then she turned and, you know, had this glowing smile on her face. And she came running back and jumped in the car and away we went. Now, in the normal turn of events, that probably wouldn't have been a big deal. But based on how that day rolled out, that was the, that was the last goodbye. And so in hindsight, I see how, how, how critical and poignant that was that she stopped the car and ran up to hug her mom and dad and kiss them both. As we took off, you know, I hit the interstate. I set the cruise control on the car at 75 miles per hour, which is as fast as I could legally go. I was hurrying. I wanted to get back home. I was missing a day of work because of the trip and I was thinking of all that stuff that I was missing out on that I had to do, I would need to catch up on. And that was an interesting event for me too. Um, I'll never forget this. As we drove, I merely looked in the rearview mirror of the car to, to check on traffic, to see what was going on behind me. And as I just peeked in the rearview mirror, it's a, it's a moment, it was a moment in time, but as I peeked to look at traffic, Griffin, my little toddler son, caught my eye just in that glance. And I noticed that he was sound asleep in his car seat. And, and, and in that glance, it's almost like time stood still. I, I noticed the details. I had the thought, wow, we were told we may not have another child. And here he is. And he's beautiful. He's our miracle boy. And I noticed details like I noticed how long his eyelashes were, even in a glance. And I thought, what a beautiful child. And I heard Spencer, my seven-year-old, playing, you know, he had little action figures behind the driver's seat where I was. And I just heard all the joyful noise of a little boy. And I thought, wow, I'm so lucky. I'm so blessed. And, and I peeked over at Tamara, my wife, who had also reclined her seat back. And she was also sound asleep. She was sleeping, but she was still holding on to my hand. And I had the thought, wow, she's still holding on to my hand. 
We'd been married 10 years, and here she was holding my hand like she did, you know, the first time I took her on a date and I had some extra money in my pocket and took her to the cinema to see a movie. But it was a profound moment of gratitude, of absolute gratitude, thinking, wow, look what I'm surrounded with. How do I deserve this? And, uh, of course, my attention went back to the road, and I proceeded to drive as we headed home. And it was probably about an hour after that um, that the accident took place. There was reports of crosswinds. Uh, there was reports of a red pickup truck that was driving erratically on the interstate. One of the most difficult parts of this story is I, I believe I may have just nodded off at the wheel J just for a moment. And um, that had haunted me. You know, I was a father with a young family. I was working those long, you know, 14, 16 hour days. And I may have just, just blinked off. And whatever happened, I swerved to the right, I overcorrected to the left, and in overcorrecting, I lost control of the car, and then the car began to roll, not, not off the road, but down the road at that high speed of 75 miles per hour. And it was a horrific accident. The accident reports say we probably rolled no less than six or eight times. Uh, I blacked out for that, you know, I mean, I don't recall rolling. I remember swerving and losing control. But when the car came to a stop, when the car finally came to rest, I was completely conscious. I, I was alert. I was awake. The first thing I heard was my seven-year-old, Spencer, in the back seat behind me, and he was crying hysterically. And, and my first thought as a father is, I've got to get to my son. I've got to get to my boy. And that's when I realized I could not move. I was pinned, and I, I couldn't tell whether it was to the seat or the floorboard. There was the rancid smell of gasoline. Um, I was unaware of my injuries. I knew I was struggling to breathe. I knew I was experiencing intense pain, and I knew I was losing consciousness, but I was unaware that both of my legs had been crushed. In fact, my left leg eventually was amputated above the knee. I had damaged my back, I had damaged my rib cage, my lungs were collapsing, my right arm had almost been completely torn off, and the seatbelt had cut through and ruptured all my insides. Um, I was unaware of that. The adrenaline and my child crying, but that's when the brutal reality hit that no one else was crying. and. Um, I became acutely aware right there on the accident scene that both my beautiful wife and my youngest son um, were gone. They, uh, they were killed instantly in the accident. Now that's, uh, that's the worst hell I suppose a man could be in. I mean, here I am, I'm losing consciousness. I've got a hysterical seven-year-old in the back seat. Half the family has passed. And I was driving the car. I mean, the guilt, the regret, the remorse. I, I kept thinking, can't I, can't I just wind back those three seconds? Can't I just wind it all back? 
And it was in that moment, that darkest, darkest moment. And I recall attempting to speak to my son, Spencer, as he was crying. And I, I was able to share with him, and he actually remembers this, but I said to him, I said, son, it's going to be okay. And my thought was, actually, that's a lie. It's not okay. This was a horrible situation. But it was in that dark moment that the near-death experience began. And what happened is, as I had that thought that this is not okay, things went black, and then it felt like light came, like tangible light rushed to me and, and came around me. I felt as if I was surrounded by tangible light that was comforting me. And, and I began to rise above the accident scene. It felt as if I was lifting above the accident scene. And suddenly I could breathe. Suddenly the pain was gone and I was actually having the thought, how can I be okay? And as I was having that thought, Tamara, my wife, who I knew was deceased at the scene, suddenly she was there in the light with me. And, and she was fine. She was beautiful. She was gorgeous. She was radiant. Um, it's difficult to share what had happened in the accident is because she had reclined her, you know, had laid her seat back and was sleeping. The seatbelt had not restrained her properly. And she had suffered head trauma in the accident, which I was aware of. I don't often share these things. I don't do that to be insensitive or graphic or, or morbid, but, but it was a horrible scene. And yet in the light, here she was, beautiful, gorgeous, radiant, and, and she was there. And yet she was communicating to me and saying, Jeff, you can't stay. You can't stay. You've got to go back. You've got to go back. And we literally had a conversation. We had a conversation about if I stayed with her, Spencer would be orphaned. I knew that Griffin had passed, and he was not in this exchange. It was just she and I. But we literally made a choice. We, 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 we made the decision that I would go back. And uh, we have no idea how powerful our thoughts are. Because in me choosing to go back, suddenly I found myself moving about a hospital, a busy level one trauma center. No, I have no concept of time in this in this bubble of light, if you will. I, I later found out people arrived at the scene. Spencer was banged up a bit, but he physically walked away from the accident. Emotionally, he thought the whole family was gone. I had to be extricated from the car and was airlifted or life flighted to the nearest level one trauma center. I, I had no knowledge of that. I knew I had crashed the car. I knew I'd had this profound light experience. I had said the most profound goodbye I would ever say. And here I was moving about a busy emergency room hospital. And yet in moving about, I, I was very much aware. I was experiencing the doctors, the nurses, the, the other patients, the families of the patients. It's as if I had a 360 degree awareness of what was going on around me. And yet everyone I encountered, every single person, I, I, I knew them perfectly. They were, they were strangers in this realm, but I knew them. 
I knew their love, their hate, their motivations, their struggles, their joy. I, I knew their hearts in such a way that it felt as if I was connected. I, I, I call it now a oneness. I was connected. I was one with them. They were me. I was them. And it was this beautiful, profound sense of knowing. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, a, a nurse passed me, seemed to be completely unaware of me. But in that instant, I experienced or I felt um, the abuse she had suffered as a child, both physical and emotional and sexual abuse. And I, I felt that. But in that same instant, I felt her magnificence. It was like, wow, look at her here, serving, healing, assisting people in a hospital. And that's, that's just one small snippet. Everyone I encountered, there was this knowing, this connection. I knew them as well as I knew myself. And uh, I finally came upon a, a man or a body on a gurney that I didn't feel anything from, which I thought was odd. And that's when I stepped forward to take a closer look. And that's when I realized, oh, my goodness, that's me or, or that's my body. It, I mean, me, I, I was having this profound, connected experience, but I realized there's my skin suit, if you will. There's the body. And I suppose it was at that moment that I realized, wow, I'm, I'm out of the body. I'm dead, I suppose. But I was very much alive and feeling in a way I'd never felt before. And yet as I looked at myself or my body, I knew I'd made that deal. I had promised my wife I would come back and raise our son, and I knew I had to get back in the body. And again, we have no idea how powerful our thoughts are. You know, when I had that thought, when I made that decision, when I had that intention, I'm going back in, bam, I was back in the body. But back to all the pain and the grief and the trauma and the regret and the suffering, the guilt, all of it. And it was a very heavy experience. I, I was ventilated. They had a big tube, you know, down my throat, breathing for my lungs, which had collapsed. Uh, my legs were obviously immobile, having been crushed. My right arm was immobile, having had the entire rotator cuff and everything ripped out. And they actually tied down my left hand eventually because I kept reaching at all the medical equipment. And it was a very... Um, it was a very challenging experience, but I learned a lot. I learned a lot in the hospital. And you had a life review experience. Could you tell us more about that? Let me share that with you because I was in the hospital for five months. I had 18 surgeries while they worked with me. And then once in the hospital, of course, I was on morphine and all kinds of things. It's, it's interesting to point out the two most powerful experiences for me were at the scene of the accident when I made the deal with my wife, Tamara, and said goodbye. And then what I'm about to share happened at the end of my hospital stay. I was out of ICU and I had been in and out. I mean, I kept throwing pulmonary emboli or the blood clots that lodge in your lungs. I'd had horrible infections. They had had to leave my, my abdomen open because of the infections. But I was finally out of ICU, out of surgical recovery, and I was actually in the rehabilitation wing of the hospital. 
probably just weeks before I was to come home. And I had grieved so miserably, and my family had been so wonderful to support me. But the life review came at this point. I was in the hospital. They had finally stabilized my abdomen, and I was able to lay on my side. I had laid on my back so long I had rubbed all the hair off the back of my head. I, that's how long I had laid on my back because of all the injuries. But they'd finally stabilized it, and I rolled on my side, and I was sleeping. And the strange thing is, as I slept, I became aware, wow, I'm actually sleeping. It had been so traumatic, and the guilt was so heavy that I, I, I thought I haven't slept for months. And I was peacefully sleeping when I felt that light come again. That light came, the same as at the accident. It surrounded me. It was comforting me. And I'd been grieving so miserably the passing of Griffin, my, my youngest son, my child. And again, this light felt as if I was raising above the hospital bed. But on this occasion, the light dispensed. It, it went away. And as it did, I was in the most beautiful, incredible place I, I've heard people use words like heaven or the other side or the spirit world. The only word that comes close to what I was experiencing is I was home. I was home. It felt so familiar. And I was, I was whole. My, my leg was not cut off there. I had both legs and both feet and I had no pain. And I began to run. I began to run. Now, I can't emphasize it was such a physical experience. What I believe happened is my soul had left my body, but it was such a physical experience. I could feel the energy of the ground under my feet. I could feel the intelligence of the cells in my calves and thighs. I was literally running and joyfully thinking, I'm home, I'm home. And then the knowing came that I was not there to stay. And at that same time, this corridor seemed to appear. I, and I knew intuitively I'm to go to the left. I'm to go down that corridor. And I did. I began moving down the corridor. And at the end of the corridor, there was a crib. Now, Griffin, my little toddler, had been sleeping in a crib at the time of the accident. He was just, you know, 14 months old. And so I raced to this crib and I looked in. And, and there was my little boy sleeping as peacefully as he had been when I glanced in the rearview mirror. In fact, all those details came back. I noticed how beautiful he was and how long his eyelashes were. And as a father, I, I swept him up and I held him. And I don't know if you've ever picked up a sleeping child, um, but I held him and I could feel the heat and the weight of him. And I held him and it, he was solid against what felt like my body. I was holding my little boy and I began to weep. I even, I even leaned over and I, I smelled his hair. I don't know if you've ever smelled the hair of a loved one, but I'm like, this is my boy. And I began to, to cry and I held him and I was joyful that I got to hold him and he was okay. I could feel him breathing. I could feel his breath on my neck. And at that time, there was this presence coming up behind me, this overwhelming, cosmic, wise, powerful presence. And I began to be fearful. Um, my conservative Christian upbringing, I, 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 I felt like that is God. 
and I'm in so much trouble. I mean, my little boy is here because I lost control and crashed the car. His life was cut short because I, I, I overcorrected and, and, and the guilt began to bubble up and this presence was coming closer and closer. And as it came so close and I'm weeping, holding my child, I, I had the thought, I hope I can be forgiven. And with that thought, and this almost felt physical too, these divine arms just wrapped around and held me and my little boy. And that's when the lid came off. That's when the life review began. I was uh, in that thought, I hope I can be forgiven. The first communication was there's nothing to forgive. Everything is in divine order. And, and I thought, how can that be? And then my life, my life appeared. I, I, I saw things from my life. I, I saw my parents' divorce. I, I saw the insecurities that had created in me. I saw the way I, I attempted to overcome or probably more specific, cover those up. For me, it was sports and athletics. And if I just perform well enough, then I'm okay. But there was this insecure little boy and I was seeing it in that innocence, like, Wow, and I, I saw things and I thought, well, that was a mistake. I, I didn't mean to do that. And this beautiful divine being, God, if you will, who held me said, there are no mistakes. What did you learn from it? I kept being asked, what did you learn from it? And suddenly I was seeing this review in such a different way. There was things I saw and I thought, well, that was wrong. And I knew it was wrong and I did it anyway. And as God held me, I was told, that's your judgment of it, not ours. You are as beloved. You are as holy. You are as precious to the divine as the little boy you hold. And, and that's what was so powerful to me. I mean, here I was holding my child, who to me is perfect and divine and holy and precious and, and beloved and yet here was God communicating to me that not only me, it was a very personal experience, but that every living soul is that precious, is that beloved, is that what connected to the divine. It just expanded my, my consciousness in a way I thought, wow, that's why I was seeing everyone in the hospital so beautifully. So powerfully, that's how God sees us. And I was experiencing that's how God sees me. It's the way I'm seeing my little boy and yet magnified. And so the life review, there was no judgment. There was no judgment. There was simply this unconditional love and the question of what was I learning? What had I learned? What was, what was the lesson? And I was only asked one question the whole time by the divine. And the question was, to what degree have you learned to love? It, it changed me forever. And in fact, in that experience, I was given a choice. Once again, I realized how powerful choice is. The divine communicated to me, you can be mad at God your whole life and feel like, wow, a, a divine you know, force should have not allowed this accident to happen. I was also told I could beat myself up my whole life. I could feel guilty about it, and that would have devastated me. But I was given a third choice. Here I am holding my child, and 
God says to me, I want you to exercise your will. Now, given my upbringing, I'm like, no, 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 it's your will be done. I, 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 have no, I mean, I, I was here, I was questioning the divine and I said, I thought it was your will be done. And the being who held me said, your will is my will. That's how much we love you. And I was given a third choice. He said, perhaps you can give your son to me. Perhaps you can hand him over and trust and realize it's all love. And in all that peace and all that beauty and all that divine light, I was able to, um, to kiss my little boy and I, I handed him over. And then I, I, I woke up or came to myself that suddenly I was back in the hospital bed, back to the amputation and the, you know, the, the right leg all splinted up and the colostomy bag and the right arm that was all in a sling. But I had a little bit different perspective and I had exercised my will. I had given my son to God rather than feeling like he had been taken away. And what did you learn from the life review? You know, what I've taken away from that, and the experience was so intense, it, it changed me forever. But the question, to what degree have you learned to love? And I thought perhaps it was about loving my neighbor. I've come to realize as I've grown old and, and processed this, it also meant to what degree have I learned to love myself? Um, you know, I was always taught growing up, you must love your neighbor as yourself. And I had become good at loving the neighbors, but I was so hard on myself. And being in those arms and feeling that unconditional love of the divine, it was almost like in holding my child, I could see myself as an innocent child. And I could realize I'd done things that didn't work for me. I'd done things that were contrary to my integrity. But rather than judging them and beating myself up, I could ask, what did I learn from it? And how will I change? What will I do differently? And so I came back from that life review wanting to love more, wanting to somehow in, in this realm be, even if on a small level, some manifestation of that unconditional love that I had experienced in the arms of the divine. How are you and your family doing now? How is your son? You know, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. And as I say, it's been 26 years uh, since the accident happened. But, but things unwound in a beautiful way. I mean, the near-death experience changed me, but I had a big realization in coming home. My brothers, who are my heroes, they came to get me out of the hospital and I was gonna be going home to my younger brother's house where Spencer, my son had been staying. And I was so worried about how he would accept me. How would this affect him? I mean, I, I had been the rough and tumble father and I was not that anymore. I was in a wheelchair, I had a colostomy bag, I had my arm in a sling, my right leg was all up in a brace, my left leg was amputated. And as we arrived at the house, I, I saw my son Spencer looking out the window, watching as my brothers, his, his uncles, literally had to lift me out of the car and put me in the wheelchair. And I thought, how is he going to accept this? 
And I began to navigate. It was an electric wheelchair. All I had was my left hand to drive that. And so I would begin navigating. My brothers had built a ramp that would allow me to get into the house. And they were emphatic that I do it myself. And I began to drive up toward that ramp. And Spencer, my little seven-year-old, came running out of the uh, house. And he ran down the ramp. And he ran right past me. Um, and I thought, this is too much. He can't handle all this. He can't handle me in the wheelchair and all that's going on. And it broke my heart in a way, but I began to navigate my way toward the ramp. And I thought, he'll just have to get used to this. And as I turned to go up the ramp into the house, I, I looked just to see where he had gone. And he had actually run across the street. He had run across the street and he was knocking on all the neighbors' doors. And he began to shout, come out, come out. My dad has made it call. My, my dad is home. My dad is home. Come see my dad. And I, I began to weep again. I cry a lot more after the accident. And then he did eventually run around and he came and threw himself on my lap, which just about killed me because I still had all the, you know, the sutures from the abdominal repair and I share this for a specific reason, because there I was in a wheelchair, broken, holding my surviving son. And suddenly, that was no less divine than being in the other realm, holding my son who had passed. Heaven was right here. And the unconditional love of a child felt as powerful as the unconditional love of God. And we had this funny conversation. I said, look, I'm going to work really, really hard to get well. But I'm going to be like this for a while. Are you going to be okay? You're going to have to help me at home, and we're going to have to work together. And we still laugh. He's all grown up now. It's been 26 years. He's 33 years old. And he said, Dad, if you were nothing but a puddle of blood, I would still love you. And <laughs> we started laughing and, and life has moved on beautifully. We've had miracles. I was able to get back to work. I was fit with the prosthetic. I even fell in love again. I remarried, and I felt guilty about that. I think I have a guilt complex. Um, at first, when I realized I was having feelings for another woman, I, I you know, I... I didn't know how to deal with that. I ended up at the grave of my first wife, and I was kind of angry. I think I was in a mood for a fight. I, I, you know, I, I was like, how dare you leave me? I'm so lonely, and I'm trying to raise our boy, and, and you're in that beautiful place. And as I poured my soul out, I swear I felt her come to me. I, I felt as if she was right there. I, 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 could, I didn't see her, but... I felt her hands on my shoulders as I was hunched over, sobbing over her grave. And she actually communicated and said, I loved you enough to go. And I thought, how can that be? And the communication was, we had a deal. I would have loved to stay and grow old with you, but your soul wouldn't have gotten what it came here to experience. And I loved you enough to go. And... I said, yeah, but I'm having feelings for another woman. And, and she laughed at me. She laughed and she said, of course you are. She said, I know you are. I know who you are. And she communicated that she had sent Tanya, my current wife. I sent her your way. And Tamara, my wife who passed, has a great personality. She said, Jeff, you're a pretty good dad. But she said, my little boy deserves a mom. And she's a good woman. 
And so from there, you know, the relationship advanced and I, we became married. We adopted two boys. I don't even call them my adopted sons. They're just my sons. We rebuilt a family and beautiful things have happened. Um, it doesn't mean I didn't grieve miserably, but I feel like I have two really powerful guardian angels that look out for me. In, in Tamara, my wife that passed, and in Griffin, my little son, who doesn't feel like a little son. When I feel his presence now, it feels like a massive guardian angel that's looking out for the old man and uh, guiding us through life. So life has unfolded in a beautiful, beautiful way for me. You came back from the hospital. Your son embraced you and hugged you, and that felt like a heaven that you felt when you were out yeah. of your body. Um, how, how else have you experienced it? Wow, what a great question. Um, in the little things, I experience heaven in the little things. Uh, you know, people will say, well, you must have been spared for a, a, a huge purpose, you know, to raise your son. And then I look at the little things and I think, no, I was spared to play catch with my son or to, or to watch one more sunset or to hold my wife's hand. Those have become the incredible miracles, if you will. And I've experienced heaven in interesting ways. I, I work in the city and we have homeless people. Um, I was leaving work one night. I had taken the bus into work and Tanya had brought the car. We were going to go have a date night. And uh, she was waiting in the car and I came out of the office and this, this homeless man came up. And of course, he, he started talking to me and was asking for money. And I, I, I have a huge soft spot, but I kept saying, well, I, I got to go. Look, my wife's waiting over there. And then something came over me and said, look at him. Look at him. And I looked him right in the eye. And, and suddenly he became my brother's. He became my son. Suddenly he became me. I thought, wow, had I not had the family support I have, I could have been him. Strung out on some corner wondering what happened. And as I peered at him, suddenly he became divine. And I remembered being held in the arms of God and I, it just overcame me. I, I, I threw my arms around him and I held him. I, 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 hugged, I hugged this man and he hugged me back. Mm -hmm two grown men, strangers, and, and it almost came out of my mouth before I realized what I was saying. I said, I know who you are. And he said to me, I know that you know. And, and we stood there and wept. I'm sure Tanya sat in the car and thought, what is going on? But suddenly heaven was there. And I realized he, he didn't, I mean, I'd have given him everything in my wallet at that point, and he no longer wanted the money. He just wanted to be acknowledged and recognized. And, and yeah, that was heaven for me when I suppose I call it the veil. It lifts and suddenly heaven is right here and there's nowhere to go. There's nothing to become. It's simply to be in that perfect moment and enjoy the divine energy we have right here, right now. What is your biggest takeaway from the near-death experience? The biggest takeaway from my near-death experience is love and choice. 
that we have a choice. We can't always control what happens, but we can exercise choice in how we experience it. For, for so long, I asked the why questions. Why me? Why both of them? Why the leg? And it wasn't until I shifted into what can I learn from this? You know, how is my soul expanding? And therefore, what can I do for others? When I became outward focused to others, that was the takeaway. And suddenly that question, to what degree have you learned to love, became very powerful. And in loving others, it allowed me to love myself. And that's where the healing was found. And I don't, I don't know if one needs a near-death experience to connect with that divine love and that divine energy of reaching out and, and supporting and, and being kind and compassionate and uh, just being a person of love. That's all. That's all. That's my takeaway. Gosh, if I can show up in love, then that's my purpose. Love is is a big word and it has yeah. many definitions uh what is love to you love is so many things there are so many definitions there's romantic love you know when you fall in love there's gosh i i love good food <laughs> you know i mean love if i could lean into the essence behind the word uh, words are just words, and words often get in the way when we're attempting to communicate. One of the most difficult things about telling this story is choosing the words, but love to me is letting go of expectations, letting go of conditions, and leaning in to pure, unconditional love, love without conditions, and loving myself. If I can love myself, then that love radiates out and it's so much easier and more natural just to love others. You have a new book that just came out. You co-authored with your son. Could you tell us about that? We had no idea. We had no idea. I, I mean, some guys fish, some guys golf, or they work on cars. My son and I wrote a book, my oldest son, who uh, survived the accident with me. And he wanted to do this. You know, I had this profound near-death, out-of-body experience. He didn't. He was a seven-year-old child, and uh, he lost his mother. He lost his brother. In many ways, he lost his father. I was never going to be the same. And as he grew up and became an adult, he said, Dad, I want to do something for the little ones. I want to do something for those who were like me, who had nothing. And uh, we decided to write this book called Where Are You? And we thought we were writing a children's book. It's, it's written from his innocent seven-year-old perspective. Where are you? I've looked in the kitchen. I've looked in the garden. I've looked in the sky. Where are you? And it, it has a beautiful wrap-up as he realizes that his mother or his brother or anyone who has someone pass, they live on within us. They live on in us, and we honor them in the way we live our lives. And the book was not only embraced by children, but it's been embraced by everyone and anyone who misses someone. We're, uh, we're grateful and excited, but we had no idea it would be an international number one bestseller. But uh, we're just glad that putting it out there has allowed others to, uh, to begin to heal. Thank you. 
Do you have anything else to say to the audience? Oh, wow. Choose joy. Be kind to each other. Be good to each other. And even love your enemies. I mean, we're so divided sometime in this world. And if we can overlook our differences and realize we have far more in common as humanity, as, as if you will, manifestations of the divine, if we can put aside our differences and just join arm in arm and walk each other home, we could literally change the world. Heaven would be right here. Thank you, Jeffrey Olson. It was such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. Watch new episodes every Saturday on NTD Television at 9 p.m. Eastern Time and on Epic TV at 9.15 p.m.